Okay, everybody, come on in. Let's do it. For our friends coming in, if you still have empty seats, raise number of fingers by how many seats you got at your table. Last call. We got lots of empty seats. Come on, fill it up. Amen. And since you got your hands in the air, let's be Pentecostal. Let's pray. Okay. <laughs> I tricked you. No. All right. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you're already depositing into our hearts and into our lives. And so, Lord, we just ask you to continue to do it. Challenge us. Change us by the Spirit of God. Uh, in your name we pray, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right. Well, we're talking about Christ-centered preaching, and, and on one level, when you put up a title like this and you say Christ-centered preaching, it just sort of sounds, well, yeah, well, what other kind of preaching would there be, right? Would there be self-centered preaching? You know, so, so it's kind of like the Sunday school answer. Jesus is, seems to be always the answer to every question, right? So, but I, I, I've chosen this on purpose because I think there's something more here that we can kind of mine the depths of. And just to give you a little lay of what this, this uh, seminar is going to look like, I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes or so. Pastor Daniel Grothy is going to come and he'll do about 20 minutes or so. And then we'll do some questions, some Q&A at the end and hopefully make, make room for all of that. So how many of you in the room, just so we kind of know who's here, how many of you in the room preach weekly? That's great. How many of you preach about once a month? All right, how many of you preach once a quarter? Okay, how many of you don't preach at all? Amazing. I, I mean, I'm just fascinated that, 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 you're, that you're here in this uh, seminar. So we'll, hopefully there'll be something for everybody because I do think a lot of these things that apply to preaching, I'm not, not, not going to go into anything that's specific about public speaking per se, but I think a lot of the same questions that, that shape a sermon are um, the same questions that can shape a ministry design and, and things like that. So before we start, I want to show you a clip that um, is from a TV show, one of my favorites, called The West Wing. You guys remember The West Wing? And uh, just clever dialogue and all of that, but this is one of those scenes. I mean, just remember, if you're ever discouraged about your church and having to preach every Sunday, and as Pastor Brady says, you know, Sundays come around with alarming regularity, you know, you preach a good one, then you got to do it again. Nobody's, you know, patting you on the back. Um, but imagine if you had to be the preacher where the president attended church, right? So this is the episode where President Bartlett and his wife are coming back from church and their critique of a sermon. Here we go. Hi, Charlie. How was church? It, it was sucked. fine. Stop it. It sucked. You're talking about church. Oh, like I'm not already going to hell. What was the problem? He feels the homily lacked panache. It did lack panache. It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in something. In splendor. And I have no problem with Ephesians. And any time you want me to cleanse you with the washing of water, you know I'm up for it. Then what is your problem? Hackery. Oh. This guy was a hack. He had a captive audience. And the way I know that is that I tried to tunnel out of there several times. He had an audience and he didn't know what to do with it. You want him to sing Valare? It couldn't have hurt. Words. Oh, Words, oh. when spoken out loud for the sake of performance, are music. They have rhythm and pitch and timber and volume. These are the properties of music. And music has the ability to find us and move us and lift us up in ways that literal meaning can't. Do you see? You 
are an oratorical snob. Yes, I am, and God loves me for it. You said he was sending you to hell. For other stuff, not for this. You can't just trot out Ephesians, which he blew, by the way. It has nothing to do with husbands and wives. It's all of us. St. Paul begins the passage, be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. Be subject to one another. In this day and age of 24-hour cable crap devoted to feeding the voyeuristic gluttony of an American public hooked on a bad soap opera that's passing itself off as important, don't you think you might be able to find some relevance in verse 21? How do we end the cycle? Be subject to one another. So, this is about you. No, it's not about me. Well, yes, it is about me, but tomorrow it'll be about somebody else. We'll watch Larry King and see who. All hacks off the stage right now. That's a national security order. Brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, you can clap, man. Why not? It's a great clip. We bring the lights back up. It's brilliant because here's someone who cares about words. And he says, words, when spoken out loud, can take on the quality of music. It has pitch and timber and meter. And he starts talking about all of this stuff. And it's, it sounds really, really inspiring for a moment. And then you realize, I have to do this, right? But one of the things he says in there is he says he, had the, he talks about the preacher. He says the preacher had a captive audience and he didn't know what to do with it. Man, the, the task that we've been entrusted with as people who preach, people have come. And I, I'm under no illusions. We know they haven't come for us. Nevertheless, they've come. What will you stand up and say? How do you decide what to stand up and say? Is it a gimmick? Is it a trick? Is it the sort of thing that will maybe keep them coming back? How do we address the thing that they're really um, wanting to hear and know? This is his comment in there. He says he, he missed a chance to say something relevant to their actual situation. Sometimes the word relevance, of course, gets kind of this bad rap because we think of relevance means you're a slave to the trend and you just got to do whatever is cool, whatever is trendy. But there's another way to think about this. Years ago, there's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He's the chair of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School. Years ago, when he was doing his PhD, he studied under a legendary German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. And Wolf tells the story of trying to, as a young 20-something, to figure out what he was going to do his dissertation on. You know, here he is. He's studying under Moltmann. What am I going to write about? And Moltmann says to him, he says, find out what moves people and shine the light of the gospel on it. Find out what moves people and then shine the light of the gospel on it. If you just start with saying, well, this is my message, or this is what I want to say, or this is what I like, or this is what matters to me, you might end up in, in the place where you've got a captive audience, but nobody's really, that's not really what they want to hear. That's not really, it, you haven't shown them the bearing. Why I love that clip so much is Bartlett is saying, look, there was something in the text that's profoundly relevant to the questions people are asking, but he didn't know how to draw it out. That's a bad day for all of us. When there's something profoundly relevant in the text that people need to hear, but we haven't figured out how to draw it out. Now, I'm, in a, I'm a novice like um, maybe, maybe like many of you, and so I'm, I'm not taking the posture this afternoon of saying, okay, here's how we've got it figured out. We don't have it figured out. But sometimes C.S. Lewis used to say when he would write about theology and he would say, look, I'm a novice when it comes to theology. My, you know, his learning was all in medieval literature. But Lewis used to say sometimes a fellow student can help another student out better than a teacher can or a professional can. You, you know that experience in class when you're like, I'm not going to ask the teacher a question because he already, he doesn't know what it's like to not know. 
So sometimes a fellow student can be like, hey, hey, I'm learning this too. I think what we're trying to do is, so I'd like to take that posture today of a, as a fellow student of preaching to say how can, here's, what, here's some things that might be helpful along the way. Find out what moves people and shine the light of the gospel on it. I want to use that as kind of our phrase that we work through today. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we can begin to ask is, okay, so what is the question that we can't shake. Sometimes, let's say you're doing a sermon on prayer. It'd be very easy to say, well, here's all the times prayer shows up in the Bible. Here's how Elijah prayed. Here's how Jesus prayed. Here, And you've got all of the, the little sort of Bible school clicking through the list of stories of prayer. But maybe it's worth beginning with, what's the one question people can't shake about prayer? Somebody. Does it work? Thank you. Or rather, why does it seem to work randomly? Why does God answer my prayers for our parking space and not for the healing of cancer? Right? I don't think we can, we can ever shy away from these questions. Because if we do, people sniff it out right away. They're like, you're not being honest. You've got a finely polished presentation on prayer, but you haven't asked the question that you know is gnawing us all on the inside. And so one of the ways to discover, how do I find out what moves people ask? What is the question we can't shake? Maybe another way to discover what moves people is, what is the longing that we can't name? What is the longing deep inside of us that people are having a hard time saying, I don't know how to put my finger, I don't know how to name this, but something here is wrong. C.S. Lewis used to talk about the, the German word, the Zenzucht. He said it's the feeling of longing that shows up every time you've been disappointed with a lesser joy. You know, you were looking forward to that summer vacation. And then you took the vacation and you came home and you're like, yeah, it's okay. The kids got sick and the car broke down. It's fine. It's good. We, we, it was good. Everybody has that feeling. The question is, what does that feeling have to do with the gospel? Everything. Because deep inside, we all have these longings that we can't really name, but that are hints at a transcendent kind of joy. Hints at a greater kind of hope. So there's something powerful about helping people name those longings. To say to them, I know why friendships and relationships are so hard, because what you really long for is to be fully known and fully loved. And all of a sudden they're saying, I'm listening, because that is what I long for. So you could, you could talk about sexual ethics, and you could rail against the immorality of the world, and you could do a whole illustration about how terrible Tinder is and how depraved our culture is. Or you could say, I find this fascinating because we have more access to more sex for less cost, even relational cost, than ever before, and yet there's a profound loneliness. Now people are saying, I'm listening. Because you're, you're, you're naming a longing. And so do you think what we're really longing for is to be fully known and fully loved? Yes, I'm, I'm listening. We have to be able to find a way to name these longings. I think Jesus did this all the time, don't you think? Telling stories in a way that made people say, oh, that, that's the feeling. 
That's the thing. That's the thing I haven't known how to name. That's the nagging question I haven't been able to shake. Jesus would sometimes tell a story and then say, how, what, or they'd ask him a question. He'd say, well, what do you think? How do you read the scriptures? And they'll say, well, I've been, I don't know. I, this is how I've been reading it, but is that right? Is that wrong? And he'll say, well, here's what's right. Here's what's But begin by helping them voice the question that they can't shake. Name the longing that they can't fully name. I alluded this morning to the series that we did on Ecclesiastes. and Again, Daniel was so great in kind of nudging us into doing a series that Brady and I probably would have never picked, you know. But in, along the way, we're discovering, all oh, that word for vanity is that Hebrew word havel, which means emptiness or breath. It's related to the, to the name for Abel because his life was just a breath. And so it was an opportunity to talk about all the things in life that seem so good or seem so bad and yet are nothing but a breath, a mist, and a vapor. I remember the first week of the series, we talked about all of the tasks that we do only to do them again the next day. I'm talking about laundry, y'all. I'm talking about the dishes. I'm talking about sweeping the floor under the dinner table after the kids every night. It's like I am doing this meaningless task that is complete only to, for me to do it again tomorrow. All of a sudden, people are saying, oh, is that okay to say? Is that okay to say? One of the things that Ecclesiastes allowed us to do was to sort of confront the, the, the myth of optimism. Anybody seen the Lego movie? I got kids, you know, seen the Lego movie. It's, such, it's so great because the propaganda in the movie is everything is awesome, right? Everything is awesome, you know? And to be honest, sometimes that's what people feel they get from church. It's like their lives are not like that. But they come on Sunday morning and what they hear is like, everything is awesome. Through you I can do anything. And they're like, no, I can't. I'm facing a terminal disease that I don't know how to change. I'm facing a situation at work that I don't know how to get out of. I'm facing a marriage that I don't know if, if it's going to survive. So if we can't help them name those longings and give voice to those questions, where are they going? Not to us. So Ecclesiastes for us was a chance to challenge the lie of optimism to say, is it? Is it really awesome? And you could see it on people's faces. They're like, really? Am I allowed to say that? I thought I always had to say that I'm blessed, brother. You mean it's okay to say that sometimes life feels like it's empty and vanity and breath? Yes, it is. Find out what moves people. Sometimes it involves articulating the questions they can't shake, the longings they can't name. I want to show you one more clip. This is also from the West Wing. It's a, the setting is a political debate, so just set aside the actual content of the debate. I know some of you might fire you up because we're in that season. But the, 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 the point of this clip is about re- resisting the temptation to be overly simplistic. So this whole thing is about, in debates, they say, in presidential debates, you need a 10-word answer. You need a 10-word answer because a 10-word answer is, is buzzworthy. It's, it's, that's the stuff. And sermons, the temptation of sermons is to have a string of 10-word answers, right? So, to watch this clip. Richie, many economists have stated that the tax cut, which is the centerpiece of your economic agenda, could actually harm the economy. 
Is now really the time to cut taxes? You bet it is. We need to cut taxes for one reason. The American people know how to spend their money better than the federal government does. President, your rebuttal. There it is. What the hell? He's got it. That's the ten-word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. Ten-word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question: What are the next ten words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next ten words. How are we going to do it? Give me ten after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for ten words. I'm the president of the United States, not the president of the people who agree with me.、And、by the way, if the left has a problem with that, they should vote for somebody else. What are the next ten words after that? And what are the next ten words after that? Sometimes it's enough to say to a person, "Look, this there is complexity to this issue. There's mystery to this issue. There's mystery to this question." But I want to give voice to it. Now, the rest of the quote: Find out what moves people. Shine the light of the gospel on it. A couple of simple questions that might help us with this. First of all, what are you leaving them with? How often do our sermons leave people with the message, "Try harder, try harder"? So a sermon is motivational, a sermon is inspirational, a sermon is informational, whatever. The bottom line is we're leaving them with "Try harder, try harder." Just hey, hey, if you would just—is that shining the light of the gospel? I would say no. Maybe another question you could ask is, "Who are you leading them to?" At the end of it, who are we leading them to? Possible answers: myself, because now they know that I'm the expert, and they should just trust me and sit down and be quiet and give more money, right? Or I'm leading them to the church. Just, just stay. Just come on to the church. Who are we leading them to? What makes a sermon any different from advice or a pep talk? Maybe the question that we can kind of reflect on a little more is to say, okay, so what do we mean by the gospel? Because there's lots of ways of saying this, and there's lots of ways of saying, oh, you know, the gospel, this, the gospel, that. I always think about the scene in Natural Libre where he says, "The brothers don't think I know about the gospel, but I do." You know, and there's always this thing of, oh, well, what is that? What do we mean when we say the gospel? I want to say this. When we speak about the gospel, we are speaking about Jesus. The most simple way to say what is the good news that God has for the world—it's Jesus. It's Jesus, and so that means to shine the light of a gospel of the gospel on an issue is to eventually reveal Jesus. Is to ultimately reveal Jesus. That at the end, we may have started by talking about your longing for intimacy, or your longing to be known, your longing to be loved, or your longing for companion. We may have been, we may have started out that way, but in the end, where we're going to end up is what we want is for them to see Jesus, to reveal Jesus. Again, this is something Jesus does about himself, right? You think about in Matthew, he constantly says, "You've heard it said, or Moses said, but I say unto you." The final word. 
is always Jesus. Even the way the story of the scriptures are structured, the Bible begins with a very um, um, colorful story, you might say, in the Old Testament. Because <laughs> God meets the human race where they are in their mess. But whatever is being said about violence or about um, uh, morality or whatever in the Old Testament is still not quite the final word. Jesus becomes the final word on every issue. And so what we're trying to do all the time is to drop people right in the middle of this thing and to say, look, I, I'm, I'm giving voice. I'm naming the thing that moves you, the question that you can't shake, the longing that you can't name. I'm giving voice to it, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to find our way to say, now how is Jesus the word of God on this issue? How is Jesus the word made flesh on this? What does Jesus do with our longings and our questions? The gospel, I would say, begins with Jesus, but actually draws us to the Father and to the Spirit. And so if we were to kind of flesh this out more specifically, we'd say it like this. The gospel reveals the love of the Father. The gospel points to the finished work of Jesus. And the gospel leads to the ongoing work of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to leave that up there and just say a bit more about this. If we're looking for ways to say, how do I know this sermon has really shown the light of the gospel on it? One of the things you can say is, has it revealed the love of the Father? I was talking with a friend who's preached, he's a pastor in a very secular urban city in another part of the world, a massive city. And he said, it occurred to me how few people really get that the Father is a good Father. You know, there's a way that we can preach and we can be so passionate about a subject, but unintentionally the taste that we've left in people's mouth is that the Father is an angry Father. And so it's really good to, to ask yourself, what am I leaving people? Are they getting a picture here of the love of the Father? Or are they getting a picture of, of you know, just, yeah, I mean, God is just that school teacher that wants everything perfect and right and but secondly, at some point, the gospel needs to point to the finished work of Christ. Because everything we're going to call people up to, they're going to say, well, I've fallen short. And we're going to say, yes, and thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. We're going to say, Jesus has done this. Jesus has lived this. Jesus has carried the way. Jesus is the light of the world. And to be in Christ is to say that whatever is true of him is true of us if we are in him. And so it's only because he's the light of the world that we are the light of the world, and on and on it goes. It's powerful. Now, if you listen to a, there's a whole stream, especially in America, of kind of the new reformed movement. It's, it, there's been wonderful contributions from it. But one of, from my perspective, one of the places where it might be incomplete, if I may be so bold, is that it stops right there. And it's, you sometimes hear truncated versions of it. You sometimes hear people say, the law says do, but the gospel says done. Actually, that's not quite right. Because the gospel doesn't just say done. The gospel also says go and do likewise. Go and sin no more. As you have received, freely give. The gospel says a lot of do. But it comes very differently. The gospel doesn't just fall apart without the work of Christ. The gospel also falls apart without the work of the Spirit. And sometimes in our zeal to sort of say, the gospel's all about what Christ has done, Christ, we're forgetting we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And so if, if the gospel is God at work, then it's not just the son at work. It's the father at work and it's the spirit at work. So we can't stop short by saying, well, praise the Lord, everything God wanted you to do, he's already done. And then people say, great. So is this just like, is Sunday morning all about just being assured of salvation? Is it just about assurance? Or is it also about empowerment? When the New Testament speaks about salvation, it speaks in two very prominent words. It speaks about freedom. You'll, anytime you read about salvation in the New Testament, you're going to read about language of freedom. You're going to read about the Exodus language, being freed as um, Passover language. There's a major freedom theme that's connected to salvation in the New Testament. But the other theme that's connected to salvation is the word power. Power. Salvation in the New Testament is always about both freedom and power. If we only ever pointed back to the finished work of Christ, we'd say, everybody would say, this is awesome, there's freedom. Praise God for freedom. But we need more than freedom from our sins. We need power to be different. Power to be new. So our preaching can be so much more than advice giving because we're not just preaching practical stuff and we're not just preaching, hey, the freedom of the cross. We're preaching the power of the spirit. So I kind of, we kind of talk about this as a team sometimes. Look, if my sermon is ending and I haven't pointed people to the finished work of Christ or the ongoing work of the spirit, then I'm, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And that's, it's a pivotal part of my outline. Everybody structures their outline differently. There's not a magic formula for it. But for me, I've got to open up with what that question or longing or tension is, the, the thing that moves people. And then I've got to work my way through the text till I finally get to the place where I'm pointing them to Jesus and the Spirit. Otherwise, I've, I've left them short. I've, I, I've left them short. And so I think, this may be one of the, one of the ways to, to carry this with you as you, as you um, ponder this. is to think about that great prayer that Paul prays at the end of one of his letters. He says, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and always. Amen. And may it be for you. Amen. Thank you, Glenn. I'm Daniel Grothy, I, uh, the New Life Friday Night Pastor. We meet right here in this room on Friday nights. And I've been here a little over 10 years and love this place and love to sit and think through and talk through and pray through what it means to preach Jesus Christ. And so um, let's talk a little bit more about that. I, I heard a story of a five-year-old boy and he grew up uh, the only son, the only child of older parents. And the parents were, they had him sort of later in their lives and they didn't have a very great marriage. They, they were great people, both of them individually, wonderful people, hardworking people, uh, just salt of the earth kind of people, but they didn't know how to be married together. And so they fought. And so this five-year-old boy found himself standing between mom and dad at the dinner table, they would turn the dinner table, table over and fight and throw hot coffee at each other and burn each other with an iron or use a butter knife as a weapon and 
the five-year-old boy is trying to wrestle dad off of mom or mom off of dad. Can't we work this out? And, and so that five-year-old boy would lay in bed at night and he would cry himself to sleep and he would say, I just want a happy family, God. Would God, uh, his parents never went to church. He didn't go to church, but he just, something in his very being said, this is not right. And so the boy would cry and he'd pray and God, would you do something? Would you change this story? And so that, that boy grew up a little bit and when he was nine years old, he walked to church one day by himself maybe a mile and a half, walked to church and walked into this church all by himself as a nine-year-old and imagine you at nine or imagine your nine-year-old if you have one, walking to church and going in, seeing how it's gonna go. So that day, the nine-year-old boy was spotted by a man in the church, he was the worship leader and good, good man, this worship leader, and he saw this boy who looked out of place, and I don't think he's really with anyone, so the worship leader goes to him and says, young man, are you here by yourself? Yeah, yes, sir. Well, come sit with me and my wife, and so they bring him down to the front, and the nine-year-old boy is sitting there in the front row watching this man lead the choir and sing, and, and this nine-year-old boy is just captivated. Wow starts taking guitar lessons and really, you know, he's, he's looking up to this man who's got such musical gifts. And, and, and another man in the church, a guy called Frank, saw him, the, the nine-year-old boy. And Frank said, how about, young man, I pick you up next week. You're not going to walk to church on my watch. I'll get you. So Frank swings by Sunday morning, picks him up, drives him to church. And this goes on for another 10 years. This nine-year-old boy sticks. He, he, he falls in love with this people and these people fall in love with him. When that boy was 15, he got the call one night from his dad that, hey, I'm working in the oil fields late, and uh, tell your mom I'll be home later. Uh, I'm going to miss dinner. So that night, they get the news that that man died in the oil fields in an explosion with nine men. So the knock on the door from the police officer, young man, ma'am, would you please sit down? We've got some news. So he's now with his mom, still in the life of this church, grieving, sad. And then he's a sophomore in college and he gets the phone call. He's out traveling, doing some music, gets the phone call. You need to come home. Your mom's not well. Turns out she has a brain tumor and she dies very shortly thereafter. Now he's by himself. 19 years old, lost both of his parents. But he's still in the life of this church. And now by this time, the last 10 years, he's really grown in his musical gifting. And, and this man who was the worship leader has now become the senior pastor. And he hires the 19-year-old boy to be the worship pastor in this church that he walked into 10 years before by himself. That young man that year meets a woman and they fall in love. And a couple years later, the senior pastor who was the previous worship pastor who found that boy as a nine-year-old stood up in a suit and officiated their wedding. This is a beautiful thing going on here. That man was Vep Ellis Jr. and the other man was Frank Reeder and that little boy is my dad. And he's turned 60 years old. He's sitting in the back of the room. And that's why... That's why I love the church. Now, had I stood up here as the speaker and said, you should like church. Hebrews says, thou shalt not forsake the assembling of thyselves together. 
I mean, it would, you, you just would have glazed over. You would have, you would have known the script. You would have checked out. You would have labeled me. You would have said, oh, yeah, I know what he's going to do here. I know what his project is. And frankly, he has a dog in that fight. He's a preacher. He, he's, he gets paid by the church. And yet you would say that. Now, had I come out of the gate saying, this is what it says and this is what you should do. And if I'm mad about it, like Glenn said, I've got a furrowed eyebrow and I talk like I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, because I am. <laughs> you get the point. You see, there's a way that this story has to be told. There's a way that the gospel has to be communicated. We have this Bible that is 66 different letters or books and different storytelling, uh, beautiful craftsmanship, beautiful imagery, beautiful poetry. It's very clear when you read the Bible that these people weren't winging it, that, they, that there was a project going on here. And this story is so beautiful, the love of the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit. This story is so beautiful that it's got to be told well. And so uh, if I had told you that your eyes would have glazed over, essentially what the world is asking the church is, show me and just stop telling me. Show me. Tell me how this works. Tell me about the five-year-old boy who became the nine-year-old boy that walked to church by himself. What must that day have been like? What did the nine-year-old boy feel like walking down Sheridan Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma to Second and Sheridan and walking in, taking the biggest risk of his little nine-year-old life, knowing that the home life wasn't working well? Maybe there's something here in this place. Get us into the story. Help us. Don't just tell me, show me what it means to be the people of God. You see, Jesus... Seem to have a good sense of this. If you turn to Matthew 13, you don't have to, but if you do, you will find Jesus telling seven stories, parables. And it really frustrated his followers, the people who were with him walking down the dusty roads of Palestine. They finally had enough, and the, the ones who were on the inner circle who could like sort of voice a complaint go to Jesus, and they say, what is wrong? And in Matthew 13, it says, uh, in verse 10, the, the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Just tell them. You can get a better mailing list if you just tell them. Like, you got to draw the line. You got to give them your 10-word answer. You got to be the answer to all of the other problems out there. And the only way you do that if you, is if you just hit them in the mouth with it, Jesus. Why do you do this? Why are you telling all these stories? And Jesus, in verse 15 of Matthew 13, says, here's why I'm telling stories. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed them, lest they should see, like they're, they're doing this on purpose, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn so that I could heal them. Jesus says, I'm telling stories because their hearts are dull and their eyes, they're closing them and their ears, they've plugged them up because they just don't want to hear, you see, the reality is we all have carefully constructed defense mechanisms around our hearts for the purpose of keeping us impervious to the grace of God. We don't really want to deal with God. We want to go hide. Just like we did in Genesis 3, we want to run off and hide. And so Jesus seems, he tells several stories in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant 
in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour till it was all leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It drove the disciples mad because they just wanted to be told because it's so much cleaner that way. It doesn't require our imaginations. It doesn't require our faith. It doesn't require us living into a different reality. It doesn't require, it doesn't cost us anything when we're just told. But when we're provoked, when our imaginations are engaged, when we have someone come along who tells us a story like this that makes us ask ourselves the question, what would I do had I seen the nine-year-old across the, the, the church that morning? Would I have gone to him? Or would, have I, would I have assumed it was someone's boy or whatever? I'll let someone else take care of it. You see, stories provoke us. Stories make us ask ourselves the question. Stories make us locate ourselves within that story and see what part we would have played. And I think Jesus understood this. And I think maybe to preach Jesus is to preach in the way that Jesus preached, which is to learn to invite people into the story. What Jesus was doing with these parables was opening a window to another world, another reality, a different account of things to then help us make a decision. Jesus, what happens, the question, uh, the question becomes what happens when Jesus tells these stories? Well, we're told about the story of this guy, Levi, who was a tax collector. And to be a tax collector in that day, many of you would know this. So to be a tax collector in the day, you're, you're, he, Levi's a Jewish guy, but he's working for Rome. He's in the motherland. He's in Jerusalem, but he's sending, he's got to send money back to the empire that rules them, the occupying force. So Levi, uh, he's the tax collector, and let's just say that he's got to send Rome $500,000 worth of taxes this year because that's his quota. So what you do is, if you're Levi, you actually have to pay up front. You send Rome the $500,000 before you collect any of it. But then once you do pay your bill to Rome, you're off of their books and you're fine. So if you want to go raise $1.2 million in tax revenues, you can, which means you have a really great life. And so Levi is working people over. He is fleecing old women. He's taking their money. He's saying, this is what you owe me. This is your portion. And he's doing it with a straight face and with a smile. And he's shaking hands and he's kissing babies. Levi is just going among the people, but they know he is dirty. But they still have to do it. So they're giving them the money. And then this guy who's walking down the dusty roads of Palestine, who's doing all these wonderful miracles, he says to this punk, Levi, hey, come here, follow me. You're mine now. What in, he just ripped my grandma off. Why would you call a scoundrel like that? I mean, this, this all, cast Jesus in a completely different light to these people. But Levi, as you read the story, he's listening to all of these parables that Jesus is telling. He's following Jesus down the roads. He's going into homes and sharing meals. Maybe he was there the day when the woman who was caught in adultery was on the ground before Jesus, and Jesus has this really decisive moment. It could go either way. And yet he watches Jesus restore her and dignify her and say, where are your accusers? Now go and sin no more. He restores her back to her life. And, and Levi's taking notes. He's watching this one, listening to the stories. Well, what you find out is that Levi becomes Matthew, 
who wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. So apparently following Jesus and listening to his stories is a training in righteousness over the long haul. It takes some time. It's not, it's not as efficient as just telling people, but it is provocative and it does somehow hook into our souls and mess with us over the long period of time. And following Jesus and listening to his stories, we see Levi's become Matthew's. And so what I want to suggest to us today is the people who have been entrusted with this story. I mean, there's a lot of good church people today who are out working as tax accountants, and that's beautiful, and they're out working as school teachers, and that's beautiful, and we've got lawyers, and they're doing their work imaging Jesus in the world, but we have been entrusted with this story. This is the peculiar place that we find ourselves. And so the question is, if this is the story for us to help tell to the world, how are we telling the story? Are we, are we just... Saying, telling them the truth, it's, you know, it's in the, you know, or are we, like Jesus, learning how to show them a new way rather than just tell them? You see, I got three kids, Lillian Wilson and Wakely, and Wilson is our hard, uh, hard one with regard to food. Lillian, our oldest, she came out and she would eat peas and carrots, and she loves the stuff, cauliflower. She, she's eight years old, and she just pounds cauliflower. What a, what a gift. I mean, uh, then Wilson, Wilson came along and he hates everything, anything. It's every, you just put it on the table and you see his face wrinkling up and he, he starts gag reflux and, and he just, he makes us work at dinner time. It, 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 frankly, sometimes it just drives me nuts. But Wilson is the guy who's making us work for it. What happens though is Wilson gets up and we'll have smoothies for him. But what Wilson doesn't know is that everything that he tells me he hates, I put in the blender before he's awake. And I cram lettuce in there and I cram cauliflower and I put squash and zucchini and and then you, you know, put a little sugar in there and he comes down and he drinks it and he, th- he thinks, see, why don't you just feed me this every night at dinner because I love this and what I want to tell him is it's the same stuff I tried to feed you last night. And I think this is what Jesus' stories sometimes do to us. They sneak up on us. We don't know what he's doing with us, but somehow we're drinking it and somehow we're being changed and it's, it's nourishing us and it's healing us and it's making us right. And sometimes we act like we don't like it. It's just hard to follow Jesus. And all. But, but he comes with these stories and he's blended up the truth and he's somehow getting it into us. And I think we ought to be these kinds of storytellers where... Uh, As Emily Dickinson, the great poet, says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. For the truth must dazzle gradually. It it doesn't always work to just hit people in the mouth with truth because you have to kind of tell the truth, but tell it angularly, sneak up on people, tell it slant because the truth must dazzle gradually. If we were to try to look at it face on, sometimes it would overwhelm us, but But Jesus comes and scatters stories and we preachers, we people of God scatter stories and we look up three years later and we find some people who we met three years before who were Levi's, but now they're Matthew's. So today, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to a great heritage of storytellers in the gospel story. Nathan the prophet comes to David, King David. 
And David's got a really great thing going on in the kingdom. He's got an airtight. He just sort of brought the 12 tribes together, united the monarchy. It's really going well, but David has this issue. He's got this thing going on with a woman called Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes along, and what does he do? He tells him a story. Hey, David, guess what? How you doing, man? It's good to see you. Hey, there's a story. There's this rich man and this poor man. And the rich man, he's got just flocks everywhere and he's got deep pockets and the economy's been good to him and 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 then there's this poor man he's got one little sheep a little ewe lamb but he loves this ewe lamb he doesn't go anywhere without this ewe lamb and he take he brings this ewe lamb into his house at night and he just he's so thankful for the one little gift that he has but then the rich man has a friend come in town and, and he, of course, he's got to throw a great banquet because he's got to keep all of his appearances. And so what does he do? He goes and he takes the ewe lamb from the poor man who absolutely loves this one lamb that he has. And yet the rich man has this massive herd and this flocks and his deep pockets, but he just has to feed his friend with that poor man's one precious ewe lamb. And David, he burns with indignation. What is going on? This man must be settled up and his accounts must be. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David falls on the ground and he repents. You see, Nathan, anticipating the ministry of Jesus, says, look, you, you got to tell the truth, but sometimes you have to tell it slant because it, it sneaks up on you, it explodes on you. Parables are truth bombs. You tell the story and Jesus walks away and three days later, the guy who heard it is walking down the, the roads and goes, wait, he was talking about me. And so this is an invitation for us to be the people who learn continually how to show people and help people live into this story rather than just hitting them in the teeth straight with truth that must dazzle gradually. Glenn. Brilliant. So good. I was sitting there thinking, man, dang, I'm glad I didn't have to follow that because none of my thing was showing anything. You know, it was, it's both. <laughs> no stories, it's both. nothing. Um, hey, let's do this. We've got a roving microphone. True or false? True. There it is. Um, maybe you have some questions or some thoughts. Um, we're going to have our facilitator hang on to the microphone, though, because we're preachers and we like to be in control like that. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, so just raise your hands, get their attention, and... You can direct it to either of us, or we'll both try to jump in where appropriate. Anybody? Man. Yeah. Yeah, right here, up front. There we go. Uh, you said something earlier. Uh, uh, Glenn. <laughs> Sorry, my nose here. Oh yeah, right there too. Um, I said something earlier with about talking about the finished work of Christ and talking about the power of the Spirit. So, but I'm trying to remember what the statement was that you were more of a clarifying question before I actually asked my real question. But <laughs> yeah, I said um, if I'm not pointing people to the finished work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit, then I haven't finished my job yet. Okay, uh, and so it seems like with that, with you know, because with talking about like the the kind of like the neo-reform kind of movement, you know, settling on just the, the finished work of Christ. And on the flip side, it could be also if we focus just on the ongoing work of the Spirit without the finished work of Christ, it's the opposite problem. So it's kind of both and. So if I, if I miss one, then I've missed both completely. Totally agree. Sweet. 
Yeah, and it's probably not right to divide up the Trinity in such <laughs> ways anyway. No? Mine's more of a practical question. Uh, you blamed him for the Ecclesiastes series, and or or thanked, thanked him, him, whatever. Now, yeah, yeah, there. Uh, how how long are your series? How often do you plan? Uh, you know, do they go four weeks, six weeks, all summer, all fall? You know, how can you talk us through how you do that and how far out you do that? Some of it is seasonal, where we know on the church calendar you, you have some immovable dates. You know, Easter's coming. You know, uh, you know, Christmas is coming. So uh, sometimes we'll do an Advent series leading up to Christmas four weeks. Sometimes we'll do we, we do a six week Lent series leading up to Easter because we want people to live in the death of Christ and sort of understand uh, that life was expensive for Jesus to purchase for us. And so we wanted to go on that narrative journey through the darkness before we come to the resurrection. So we we kind of know on our calendar Lent is Lent and Advent is Advent and then after summertime you know in summertime is sort of ordinary time in the church calendar and so these are great times to do a, a marriage series or like we're just about to launch a series on the the speaking of the Holy Spirit how the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us and all this but uh, it just depends on what book we are for Ecclesiastes we did 11 weeks there's 12 uh, there's 12 chapters. We did 12 weeks here on Friday and I think maybe 11 on Sunday just because of a scheduling issue. But you don't want to uh, do a book a disservice. You know, it, it, we don't want to oversimplify. We don't want to give a 10-word answer about this just incredible piece of work called Ecclesiastes. So you want to build time when you know you can try to do your very best with it. But we've done a Luke-Acts series, like four, yeah. 40 weeks maybe for yeah. the two of them together. Um, so we're, we're not in any hurry necessarily to get through them, but it varies. Just for context, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but, but Daniel, Pastor Brady, and myself, we all preach more or less the same series. Um, different outlines, but same series. Um, so Daniel, like he said, he pastors the Friday night congregation. They meet in this room on Friday nights. Shocker. And uh, Daniel's been on staff at the church for 10 plus years. Um, I've been on staff for about 15. Downtown is where I preach on Sunday morning. So... Um, we're in a series right now on the, on the Creed, on the Nicene Creed. It's going to end up being an eight-week thing. Um, I think if we do topics, it tends to be shorter, about four to six, maybe eight on the long end. If we do a text, then it can be even longer than that, like Daniel said. Um, I know people, there are people smarter than us that probably have rules and, and demographic research to back it up about how long a series should be. Uh, honestly, we, we're just trying to pay attention to our church and our people, and if we think they can handle a longer series through Luke, we'll do it. One of the things you talked about is uh, what are people longing for? And the world is quick to always give an answer for what people are longing for. How are you dealing with doing that in a gospel way? Because there's always a longing. Everybody has a longing. Yes. And doing it how the go in gospel, the way you worded that was, was perfect. And that is something that we're struggling to do. How are you succeeding in that? I don't know if we're succeeding, but we're trying. Um, I mean, if you came on Sundays and hung out, you might not say we're succeeding. But, but I think it's always helpful if you, so probably for many of you, you kind of know where the point is, the point you're trying to make. I used, I used to be a songwriter, sort of still dabble in it. But it's sort of like, it's sort of like um, having the chorus. 
Like you know what the hook and the chorus is going to be, but then you got to think back and see what the verse is going to be. That's a little bit like sermon writing for me. It's like I know I'm going to say that the, res- that the ascension of Jesus is about empowering the church, but I have not yet backed it up to say, well, what's the question they're asking? You know, and so when, when I was preaching on the ascension during our creed series, I said, I think the question is, does my, um, is there any sense of purpose or meaning? Is there any, is there any mission? And, and then I said, a lot of the answers you'll hear from the world around you is this, there's only meaning in this world if you make meaning. So if you can make your life meaningful or your job meaningful, then go for it. But you make meaning. And then I said, the creed actually gives us a different answer, and it says that Jesus being enthroned means we're part of his mission. All of a sudden, our meaning is being made by someone who's bigger and, and more interesting. So it's helpful not only to identify the question, but to identify the alternate narrative, the alternate script. We're talking about stories, right? What's the alternative story or narrative that they're hearing, and then what is the narrative of the gospel say? And the way to find that out is to walk the neighborhoods. As one great preacher said, I don't preach. George Arthur Buttrick, he was kind of the, the preaching seat of the Presbyterian Church in the 40s, 50s, 60s in New York City. And just a wordsmith uh, all day long. And he would say, I never preach a sermon without walking the neighborhood. Because I can think I know what the people are thinking. I can think I can project sort of their longings onto them. Yeah. But I, yeah. you just, you got to get to the street level. You have to walk the hoods and listen to people and know their children and know their struggles yeah. and know their, so then I can actually say with, with clarity, yes, this is the longing of the people. This yeah. is the counter narrative. And now here's what the gospel says to that. Yep. Great question. Amen. Back in the back, Lord. maybe you can grab this lady on the way. All right, so Daniel, you were talking about stories and everything else, and um, I'm in an internship and everything else right now, and we're learning about stories and correlating them into our sermons and everything else. Um, How can we actually correlate a personal story with the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Bible says be generous, right? We would all open the Bible and say, gosh, we probably can't spend all of our stuff on ourselves like the bible you know give be generous they you know leave the edges of your fields we we, biblically we could say that there's an overarching theme in scripture of generosity summed up in jesus christ who gave everything so i could stand up and just say to my people you got to be generous because the bible says it and that's true but i again i see Any of you preachers know, you see when people glaze over. You can feel when you've lost a room. Or maybe it's just me, but I just think, man, they are, something's got to change here. Happens to me every Sunday. And so, you know, after having lost enough rooms, you go home and you say, I'm not going to do that again. So what are the common threads of me losing the room? And then I'm going to avoid that. So what I try to do is, if I know that the scripture says be generous, and that's an overarching theme, I am constantly spending my week saying, Holy Spirit, what is the story? Yeah. How do I provoke people into this? How do I demonstrate? How do I show them? And so uh, really, I- I've found that if I'm attentive, if I will pray, if I will be needy before the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will highlight to me the right stories within the congregation, the right stories uh, in the world 
to bring to the congregation so that at the end of the day, they walk out of the, the church feeling provoked to be generous. And I may or may not have ever said, be generous. So you just really, you, we, are, we are paying attention to what is happening. And very often it's right in front of your face. If you will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and say, would you please tell me what needs to be heard in this moment? Because too many, too many we were talking about it this week, too many sermons are general principles. And, and I think general principles can, can actually be the enemy of contextual spirit activity within the congregation. Yeah. And so, Lord, what are you saying right now in this moment? Because a sermon has to be a word that's alive. And if I'm telling the same stories five years from now, that just means my heart has glazed over. And I'm not living open before the Holy Spirit. So to me, it's just keep, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and the stories will be available and people will be snuck up on by the Holy Spirit. May I add one thing about, you mentioned personal stories. I think there's a question maybe embedded in that about vulnerability, like how vulnerable should a preacher be, you know? Um, I think you have to determine that. I mean, there are situations I know where pastors are vulnerable, vulnerable about a struggle that is going on in real time. Or it's like, no, this is a live issue right now, and I'm dealing with doubt, or I'm dealing with discouragement, or you know? Um, I'm not sure that's always the most helpful way to do vulnerability. I, I just yeah, publicly. Um, someone said that to me once. They said, "Glenn, all of your personal stories are about are after the fact." They're like, "Yeah, you talk about when you struggle with this or this or this, but it's always in past tense." And I said, "Well, a sermon is not a reality show. Yeah. Like this isn't voyeurism TV, baby. Like you don't need to know like all the right, right." So uh, there's a line that you're blending between. I want to be vulnerable, but I also want to be helpful. So for those of us who aren't like pastors or speaking regularly, how is that something you pursue and get better at when you don't necessarily have the opportunity to do it all the time? Yeah, that's a great question. And we live in uh, an age that has thrown us a fat pitch down the middle to do this well. It's called YouTube. It's called iTunes University. It's called, there's just so much material resources available at the click of a button. So find the masters who are the best and then chase them. And, uh, you know, who, t who tells a story well? When, when I'm talking to young teachers who are kind of new to the thing, I'll, I'll take them to a Walter Brueggemann video on the Lament Psalms. And it's five minutes, and he brings out the Lament Psalms, the, the Psalms of vengeance, like the most <laughs> egregious of the, like, like, dash their teeth against the rocks, you know, throw their babies off the cliffs. Like, like this is actually in the Bible, you know? And so we... we for maybe good reason, sometimes we don't really read those publicly. We're a little scared of them. Well, Brueggemann takes five minutes and he tells us about the vengeance Psalms, but it's this whole thing. He's jangling a watch in his hand the whole time and he, he slows down and he gets louder and he speeds up and he, then he, you know, like he tell, he's a master. In five minutes, he makes the, the vengeance Psalms, makes a case for them to be a part of the church's life. So just all of that to say, there are people out there who've spent 50, 60, 70 years doing what you want to do, and they are ready to give you the wisdom they've fought to earn if you will mine it out from them. Yeah. So maybe you and I can have a sidebar afterwards, and I can give you a few people to, to chase, and we can talk about what your interests are, and then go for it. And a story, Daniel, yep. you'll like this. Um, seven or eight years ago, when I was making the transition from being a worship leader primarily to being a, a 
pastor that was preaching, I sat down with a gentleman in his 60s who did, who's been, was like a mentor to me and does a lot of leadership coaching. <laughs> he was like, Glenn, I, I love you, but are you sure? <laughs> like, like, he's like, are you sure you want to be a preacher? He's like, you're a pretty good worship leader. And I was like, no, I just, there's something to me, you know. And so he said, it was kind of like, all right, you know. But what he said to me is he said, take low-cost probes, Meaning, don't quit your day job. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't go full on, like, I'm jumping out of the boat, Jesus, I'm walking out of water, I'm going to be a pastor tomorrow, you know. Incremental, incremental until you have to make changes in your life to, to, to keep up with the, the um, blessing and the call and the faithfulness. Does, does that make sense? So, so literally, because he said to me, he said, how often have you preached in a year? And at that time, Aaron Stern sitting in this room, I was the worship leader for the mill, college ministry, and I would preach maybe a handful of times a year because Aaron's a fabulous preacher. And so I said, oh, maybe two or three times a year. And he said, yeah, that's not enough to know if you really want to do this every week. And so he said, why don't you, over the next year, while you're still employed as a worship leader, why don't you take every opportunity within reason that you can say yes to? To speak, so I lit, literally I spoke to a homeschool moms group. I spoke to an FCA group at the Air Force Academy. I spoke to a group of three people who wanted to be aspiring writers. I didn't know anything about writing, but I said everything. Anyone who that, would anyone listen, that would listen. I said yes, and you ha- you have to practice. There is no substitute for yeah. that. Reps. Great question. As a member of the congregation who sits, you know, on Sundays and listens to you gentlemen um, speak, sometimes I know that I wish our pastor spoke, and the name of the, um, the session is post-secular. We live in a very secular world, um, especially my generation. There's just a lot of inundation of Facebook, and I have a lot of my friends who are not Christians, and I, I have, that's a big part of my world. And obviously everything that's happened this summer with um, the legal stuff and everything that's happening in our world currently, how do you guys determine how much of that goes into your sermons versus just, because sometimes you're sitting there and you want your pastor to talk about this. It's on your mind, like we were talking, you know. Sometimes you're sitting in there and you're like, can you kind of touch on this? Because this is the, the only time I get to hear you guys talk about this is on Sunday. So how do you kind of gauge that balance between gospel and preaching and making it about Jesus, but applying that to our secular world? That's a really great question, and it's a dance. It's a real dance. Um, The problem that I have found, or at least one of the problems, is if I go there, very often the goal gets sidetracked. We get just lost in the weeds. And people start hearing what they want to hear. Oh, yeah, well, good, I can trust this pastor because he's for dot, dot, dot. Or... Wait, he believes that? Well, forget him. And it, caused, it causes division over something that shouldn't divide us. That's not the goal of this moment of proclamation. And so maybe the word that, that I've learned over the last few years about this is to learn to be subversive. So there's a way where we can go against the Supreme Court ruling without standing up and making the, the pulpit, the soapbox to rail on you know this issue for 20 minutes when there's a whole lot else going on in the world so learning to seed and to undermine subversively and to chip away at the the predominant narratives of our world without having to stand up and again just hit it straight in the teeth and then there maybe are moments to do that for sure 
I mean, I think uh, there is certainly a model of preaching that says here's the text and here's the application. I am, um, again, I, I, what I hoped to try to present is actually beginning with the deeper longing that is actually underneath the issue. Yeah. So what are some of the things that are deeper underneath the quote-unquote issue? It's about identity. It's about belonging. It's about intimacy. It's about being known and being loved. So I want to address those longings more than I want a soapbox about an issue. I guess this is not really a question, but a thought that came to my mind that I really appreciate what you were saying about um, if we're told, it does not require us to engage our imagination. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, if our imagination is engaged, we're participating. Yes. And we, we often hear about that in worship, that when we go to church, the congregation is supposed to participate. Yeah. So here in the sermon, here is where the congregation is participating. Yeah. Yeah. They're participating as their imagination is engaged. And if their imagination is engaged, they are invested in, and when they're invested, it's more likely the heart will change. Yeah. That's a great point. A couple years ago, about a year and a half ago, I built a library in my house, or I was undertaking building a library in my house. And now, I'm not Mr. Bob Vila. Uh, so 10 years ago, I didn't own a hammer. And, and so now I'm getting better and I'm working on stuff and I've bitten off some smaller projects and finished them and they look good. So I wanted to do this big project. Well, I got kind of stuck in a critical moment in the project and I called my friend who is Mr. Bob Vila. And I not said, literally. <laughs> not literally. I said, hey, here's the situation. I even, I FaceTimed him and I was holding the phone there and I was showing him the issue and I, hey, look, you see it, just tell me what to do. And he said, I'll be right over. And he came over and he spent the next couple hours with me in it so that next time I meet that issue, I don't have to call him. He, he showed me and, and in showing me, he taught me how to do it, I learned. But if he had just told me, it probably wouldn't have worked. And had he just come over and done it and said, Daniel, you can take your wife out to dinner, I wouldn't have learned anything. So you're right, the engagement, the participation, let's, let's walk with them and let's walk together as we all learn how to be the people of God. Great point. Tim, can you throw this back on the screen? I'm, I'm reluctant to show anything like this because, man, we're, we're all figuring this out, fellow students, right? So you're, I'm letting you look at my worksheet, basically, okay? Um, I, we, every, Daniel and I have talked about this. We have very different ways of organizing sermon content, and you can tell Daniel is a brilliant storyteller and thinker, and he weaves so much truth into that way. I'm a little bit more of a, I need sections, you know? So I always try to start with this attention slash tension. Like, how am I getting their attention in the beginning of this talk? Because again, the first five minutes, captive audience or not, right? What's the tension? That's where the longing and all that stuff comes in. Then the teaching part, the text context, you know, it's like, okay, so what does the text really say? And then, this is why you made me think of it, Mark, is the word participation. I think application is a fine word, but I love the word participation because this is the thing of where am I in this story? Who am I in this story? Am I Paul? Am I the pilot of the ship? Who, uh, wh- where am I in this story? How do I join in, right? And then after the participation, then comes the gospel, you know? So where, where's the gospel moment? And, and, and for us at New Life, it all, all of our services always end with the table. So for me, it's helpful for me to think of an invitation. So the attention, tension, text, context, participation, gospel, 
invitation to the table. So anyway, whatever. Maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not, but there you go. One or two more, anybody? Well, thanks for coming. That's great. Yeah. Let's pray as we go, Lord. We're honored to be here today in the company of people who are spending their lives and their attention and their energy and their imaginations on being proclaimers of the love of the Father seen in the Son that empowers us by the Spirit. And today we pray for all of us that we would walk the streets and know the longings of the people to be able to discern the false narratives that are swirling about, to be able to pick up on and discern the lies that are being told so that we can name them and shame them and and go in the opposite direction. Lord, help us to be people who hear your voice and help us to be people who are diligent to study, to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen and women that don't need to be ashamed knowing how to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to be able to deal uh, beautifully and truthfully and discreetly and honorably and soberly with your word. Because we believe that your word is alive and active and it's sharp and it cuts and it slices us up and it divides truth from error and darkness from light and joint from marrow. Lord, as we speak your word, we pray that it would first discern our hearts and the thoughts and the intentions that are inside of us. But Lord, that as we stand publicly in front of people, that that the word of God would do what only the word of God can do, which is divide us up and and show what's right and what's wrong. And so Lord, I just pray for a new anointing, a new spiritual authority, a new love for your word, a new desire to chase you to the very bottom of it, to be on the hunt looking for the work of the spirit and to then stand up and, and be faithful proclaimers of your story. Here's why we can do this. We can do this because we believe that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes everything you've sent it to accomplish. And like the rain and the snow that fall down from the heavens and water the earth, so it is with your word. So Lord, as we undertake this sobering task of proclaiming your word, we pray that we would see the rain and the snow of the word of God coming down and watering the lives of the people that we see in our congregations, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. Pray that you would bless my friends and keep them, make your face to shine upon them. And Lord, be gracious to them. Lord, lift your countenance upon them and grant them peace and make them faithful proclaimers in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. It's 312, you got three minutes back. Go play.